Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're spoon-feeding you the latest research. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, get down to business with risk gratifying chest pain patients with the EDEX score. Then more on the effects of COVID on the hearts of athletes. After that, teaching medical students to develop the keen eye for sick versus not sick. And from the fourth article, how much workup is really needed for febrile infants with COVID? And then lastly, not all tests are equal, comparing the options for troponin assays. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were written by the hardy Vivian Lay and Clay Smith. So without further ado, we bring you the first article, which was titled The Diagnostic Accuracy of the Emergency Department Assessment of Chest Pain Score, EDAX, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Chest pain is a common complaint, and in most shops, honestly, the missed rate of MIs is desired to be as low as possible. So when you're sending someone home, it's nice to be able to back up your decision with things like risk stratifying tools, the most popular of which is the heart score, coming in with a pooled sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 42%. But the heart score is actually not the best score. When compared to things like the EDAX score or the TMAX score, it's actually lost before. So let's take a closer look at the EDAX score to see how it does across multiple studies. To do this, the authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis of eight studies where they were assessing the diagnostic accuracy of the EDEX score. And it did a little bit better than the heart score, but only in terms of being 18% more specific. They actually both had the same sensitivity at about 96%. Now, of course, any meta-analysis is only as good as the studies that went into it. And there was some heterogeneity in the studies, but overall the EDEX score is pretty objective. It's based on age, sex, risk factors, the presence of diaphoresis, and then some characteristics of the pain. So using this test, the overall probability of missing a major adverse cardiac event was 0.7%. I'd call that pretty good. And that's a negative likelihood ratio of 0.06. So at least for the subset of patients that you're going to fit into this category of being low risk on the EDAC score, even though you were probably gonna send them home anyways, at least you're gonna feel pretty good about it. In a spoonful move aside heart score, the EDAC score actually outperforms, which means that slightly more people could be discharged home than with the heart score. And then we have the second article, which is titled SARS-CoV-2 Cardiac Involvement in Young Competitive Athletes out of the Journal of Resuscitation. So we actually covered a similar study about athletes with COVID not long ago, and it seems a little bit left field to me in some ways. You know what I mean? These are not the most critical patients. Are these the patients that we should really be focusing on? These are young, fit patients. But if you look at the highest performing people, then you get the best sensitivity for looking at changes in the effects of COVID. Like when you ask someone to do a couple of steps for you in the emergency department and they look fine, they walk okay. But then you ask them to do a tandem gait and they're falling all over the place. It's the same principle. Make the goal harder and then you're gonna see the finer points. The downfall is that it's hard to generalize this to these whole age spectrum and all the different patients, but I still think it's important to know about the possible effects. So this was a prospective observational study of students from 42 colleges and universities where they had 3,000 of their cohort testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. 
a third were asymptomatic, another third were mildly symptomatic, and then the last third had a little bit more than just smell or taste changes, headaches, or a sore throat. But what we're caring about right now is cardiac involvement. So overall, 13% reported some kind of cardiopulmonary symptoms. But when they were tested with echocardiography, a 12-lead ECG, or cardiac troponins, then less than 1% in each case had abnormal findings. To get an even closer look, cardiac MRIs found that 3% of all the athletes tested had some kind of abnormality. When the cardiac MRI was indicated either due to symptom burden or abnormal cardiac test results, then the diagnostic yield of the MRI actually increased to 13% when it was a warranted test. So there are some cardiac abnormalities in these patients, but it's a minority and you have to look quite hard to find them. With no adverse cardiac events detected and a median follow-up time of 113 days, it's hard to say if any of this testing is really still warranted to continue, or it just means that the current standard of treatment and possibly a decrease in participation in sports is sufficient treatment. In a spoonful from a large registry of young athletes, the rates of COVID cardiac involvement were low, probably less than 3%, and there were no adverse clinical events in this short follow-up period. And that brings us to number three, teaching rapid assessment skills in triage for emergency medicine clerkship out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So one of the first things that I was taught as a medical student is that when you're assessing a patient, you should first lump them into one of two buckets, either sick or not sick. And this is a key skill since not infrequently, the medical student could be the first person to see a patient after quite a while. And so they need to be able to decide if they can take their time doing an assessment or if they should be calling for help. The question then becomes, how do we teach medical students this key skill? Well, there's actually a person in the hospital that does this as their entire job, and that's triage. So how about we try sticking some medical students in the triage department and see how they fare? This study did just that. They actually took fourth-year medical students during their emergency medicine clerkship rotations and put them on one shift in triage with a dedicated teaching attending. This was structured so students saw many patients. They were doing rapid assessments and could also quickly discuss each case with the intending. There were 21 students who did this and then they answered surveys before and after their shifts. Overall, they rated themselves as more comfortable with rapid assessments after the shifts. So this is clearly wrought with opportunities for bias. And these self-assessments aren't going to be very important for patient care either. But as our author Clay points out, and I agree with him, this is just a nice model. I never had a chance to do this during medical school, but I would have definitely jumped at the opportunity. Some of my favorite times during medical school were times like this, jam-packing experience and information into a tight little bundle. It's a valuable experience for students, I think. In a spoonful, medical student confidence at rapidly assessing patients improved over a single shift in the emergency department triage unit where they were screening patients. And then we have the fourth article, which was titled The Risk of Serious Bacterial Infections in Young Infants with COVID-19 out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Medicine. A lot of our work in the emergency department is about finding out what our patients don't have. Rather than really trying to figure out what they do have, we just want to be sure that nothing's going to kill or maim them. Sometimes, though, if you can say that you definitely know what they do have, then actually makes it less likely that they have something else. And this actually works in some instances. Take, for example, febrile infants that this study was looking at as well. If they have an RSV or an influenza infection, then it's actually less likely that they have a serious bacterial infection. So can the same be said about COVID? 
This was a retrospective study of a single center that included 53 COVID-positive febrile infants less than 90 days old. And then they were compared with 53 matched controls who did not have COVID. The incidence of serious bacterial infection was high in the study overall. But we have to keep in mind that honestly, it was done during the pandemic. And let's face it, people were only going to the hospital if they absolutely felt that they had to. Now, if these infants were COVID positive, then they were actually much less likely to have serious bacterial infections. Only 8% of the COVID positive babies had these infections, and 34% of the COVID negative babies did. Most of these were UTIs for both groups, and none of the COVID positive patients had bacteremia or meningitis. Other things about the COVID positive infants were that they were more likely to have respiratory symptoms, they had lower white blood cell counts, and lower CRPs than the controls. In a spoonful, a COVID-positive infant is actually a reassuring sign. It makes it several-fold less likely that they will have a serious bacterial infection. But, of course, I wouldn't hang my hat on one small, retrospective, single-center study. It's food for thought, though. And that brings us to our last article, which was titled The Discordance of High-Sensitivity Troponin Assays in Patients with Suspected Acute Coronary Syndromes out of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. This might not be something that you think about when ordering a test. You likely aren't even aware of which assays your hospital is using, but there are various choices when testing for high-sensitivity troponins. Now, the FDA has recommendations for cutoffs for the assays made by Roche, Abbott, and Simons. For example, when setting like, the lowest level of detection. So, I've personally attempted to design a diagnostic test in a wet lab before. It seems pretty straightforward, you know, you just run the assay and is it positive, negative kind of thing, but it's actually way more finicky than you'd think. But these are troponins we're talking about here. This could be life or death decisions sometimes. So these tests at least should give the same conclusions, if not the same numbers when run on the same samples, right? Right? Eh, think again. This was a secondary analysis of the data acquired from the RAMICAT 1 and 2 studies, where a thousand patient samples were tested for high-sensitivity troponin by three different assays, and then those test results could then be compared between the different tests. So, agreement levels left something to be desired here. If you compared just the three basic results, either the troponin level was too low to detect, it fell somewhere in the middle range, or it was too high for the assay to accurately measure, then these three test results only agreed 37% of the time. So obviously these test results were different enough to alter decision making as well. When the test result would have been used to rule out NMI, there was only a 75% agreement. And when it was used to rule in an MI, it was only 39% in agreement. To make matters worse, coronary artery disease was found in 20% of patients with troponin levels below the level of detection. Now, there were some differences between the tests, like two of them actually looked at troponin I, and one of them looked at troponin T. But the authors of this study didn't think that that would contribute to the differences seen, since each would still have their own recommended thresholds. Also, one assay, the Simons assay, was a pre-commercial version that might have changed before the final product was actually released. Lastly, there were multiple conflicts of interest declared, with many authors receiving funding from more than one of the manufacturers. Now, it's not uncommon to see dose responses with conflicts of interest and funding, too. So dipping into multiple pots doesn't mean you're free of bias, especially not if one of them pays you more than the rest. Overall, I think the important thing to be aware of 
is that not all tests are the same and that different places use different tests so a positive result in one location might not be positive in another. Studies for setting cutoff values need to be large to help us best understand where to draw the lines. In a spoonful, when comparing three commercially available assays for high-sensitivity troponins, the results may differ dramatically between tests, even enough to change management. All right, guys, let's go back over everything that we talked about. And I'd like to mention just yet again that the best way I think to learn from the journal feed is to really have that little bit of space repetition. If you subscribe to the journal feed newsletter, then you get to read these summaries every morning of every weekday. And then at the end of the week, we release the podcast and you can get an audio summary of this as well. And then you get to remember all the different points you learned and hopefully you can bring that forward to your patients. So let's do our quick little review. First off, both safe and accurate, the EDAC score is ready for the prime time. About as sensitive as the heart score, but with better specificity. More people can go home. Second, a minority of young athletes have cardiac involvement with COVID infections, but there were no adverse events seen in this short-term follow-up study. Third, medical students feel more comfortable rapidly assessing patients after getting the chance to actually do just that by having a shift in triage. What a great idea. I wish my medical school had done this and I will advocate for that to be put in place in the future. Fourth, never thought it'd be a good thing to have COVID? Well, think again. Honestly, Febrile infants who are COVID positive are less likely to have serious bacterial infections in this small retrospective study. Fifth, not all tests are the same. This study compared three high-sensitivity troponin tests and found that they were often different enough in their results to change patient care decisions. Now then you've earned them and we offer them CME credits offered through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Getting those CME credits for a fee also supports us. We very much appreciate that. And if you're already at our website, links to all the articles summarized can be found there as well. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.